Hello everyone, welcome to the Early Education Show. We're up to episode 32. I'm Liam. And I'm Lisa. And it's Leanne's turn to take oh my a... God, man, I'm <laughs> say all these kind of horrible things about Leanne while she's not here. I like how everyone gets a gets a week off. The problem I'm going to have is I'm not going to be able to because neither of you can edit and record and put it out there. What are we going to do if I want a week off? Are you technologically outing us? I think. Well, I think to be fair, I think you've both done that to yourselves in the show, so I'm not feeling too bad. <laughs> yeah, <we have. laughs> but no, no annual no, leave for Liam. <laughs> we need to get Martel back on to talk about that. That seems an unfair explo- exploitation of me as a worker. <laughs> Except, Liam, to be a worker, you've got to be paid for something. And oh, yeah. despite the generosity of our patrons, I'm not exactly sure if we're up to the stage where you can get a wage for this. <laughs> Bugger. All right. Well, we're, we're, when I do eventually become a professional worker in this space, I will then immediately turn around and take you all back to fair work. But we've got that all ahead of us. But let's concentrate on the tonight uh, tonight's uh, sort of discussions and topics and we'll... We'll do what we usually do, which is crack on with the news. We've got a few more articles than we normally have, but there's been, as usual, a little bit going on. But um, we might start with uh, one of the one of the things that came out uh, late last week. I'm probably wrong as I say that, but it feels like it was a bit earlier on, uh, earlier after our last episode, is that the, uh, the United Voice, the Union for Early Childhood Educators, uh, held a vote of the uh, members of, the, of that uh, union, and there's been a very, very overwhelming vote that continuing in, in what they're calling sort of um, walk-off-the-job action should continue. So for those who have been you know, listening to a while, we've covered a few of these in the past. Um, they're, you know, really, uh, I think the general view here is that they're, you know, great first steps in terms of community acknowledgement of the importance of this stuff. And it's great to see that, you know, again, it's got a bit of media and, Again, that educators are choosing to, I think, move on to those next steps. You know, strike action is really complicated in this space. There's a number of conditions need to be around it. But these seem to be, the article isn't entirely clear. Um, And one day we'll have to get someone from United Voice on to maybe go through some of this stuff in detail with us. But this would seem to be, you know, continuations of the actions we saw earlier, which is, you know, sort of agreed with the the, the various services and organisation and and symbolic, but not in a negative way. They're actually, I think, really useful and valuable. So it's kind of good that... That that's con- that's continuing. Is that right, Lisa? That that's your read of the article. Is it that those? Yep, that's exactly continue? what my read. Yeah, that's exactly what my read is, and I, I think it came on the back of um, a bit of a march on Monday, was it, or Monday of last week? Saturday, maybe. My time frames are as bad as yours. Saturday, yeah, <laughs> maybe it was Saturday. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, good job. It's really important that that kind of stuff is happening. Yeah, and again, and you know, if, if you have, didn't get a chance to listen, is go back to episode twenty-eight where we talked to Martel Mens from the AEU, uh, talking about the importance of educators being involved in a union and being involved in this kind of action. It's the best way to affect change. So well done to United Voice and to the educators involved. Uh, oh, Leanne's going to be really cranky. She's missing this one, but this might be another rorting alert. This one? Yeah, have you got your rotting sound? I, I still what don't have that? the sound effect. This is why I'm not being paid for this job. Oh. I'm not doing my homework. I still haven't got a rotting <laughs> sound effect. One day it is going to happen. Do you want to bring <laughs> us this one, Lisa? Well, yeah, look, once again, we're rotting. And this, uh, again, it's family daycare providers because they seem to be easy um, targets to accuse of rotting. But um, what this is about is people rorting Centrelink benefits while they're also getting CCB 
and CCR payments as family daycare operators. So obviously if you're getting money in for minding children and you're claiming unemployment benefits or pension at the same time, then there's a bit of a problem. So what they're saying is that they've um, already uh, worked out um, about $60 million in overpayments and they think it'll eventually come up to $200 million. Yeesh. So, yeah, it's, you know, not a, a bucket in the ocean, but, you know, the example that this story gives, gives, gives is that one family daycare operator in Victoria received a Centrelink payment and they failed to declare $240,000 in income as a family daycare educator. So, (laughs) hey, yeah, it was over four years. It wasn't just over one year. I was going to say, that's a pretty good year for a family daycare. (laughs) No, yeah. Oh, God, it's interesting. Yeah. We've we've talked about this in the past. I love how there's only two of us and we're talking over each other when there's three of us, we do better. But all I was going to say is we've we've talked about this in the past. I think it's always important to remember the context of the system is the, the current system. So the CCMS system kind of is, is poorly, it's poorly set up for compliance. So it's still, it's not a huge chunk of this stuff's continuing to happen. I think it's more into the bigger stories politically that more people, that, that the education department under Simon Birmingham is far more interested in in cracking down on this and then putting it out to the media and that huge parts of the IT system that they seem to be developing for the Jobs for Families package is, you know, mostly tailored around trying to get on top detection. of this compliance. Rort detection, that's right. Ending the rorts. Stop the rorts. <laughs> I'll just read you the last paragraph of this article because I think it's really interesting and unfortunately it's an article in The Australian so if you don't have a subscription, it's a bit hard to get to because it's behind a paywall. Um, but it it um, it reads a large number of the overpayments originated when Labor was in government. They simply failed to do the basic auditing of welfare <laughs> payments <laughs> to ensure that people weren't ripping off the taxpayer. We are now uncovering welfare overpayments that they never bothered to check, and that was a quote by um, uh, um, Tudge who. Who's Tudge? Alan Tudge is oh, in think... Department of Human Services yeah. somehow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. That's yeah. really interesting. So, um, yeah. So the, uh, he's the minister um, for human services. He's That's not right. my department. He's the minister. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah. The fact that they're still blaming something on the Labor government, or who haven't been in government <laughs> now for Five two years? successive governments. Yeah. yeah. Oh, but the other thing I think is really important to say whenever we hear about um, this kind of rorting in family daycare, it's happened in a week where um, there was also more rorting and, in fact, a $4.5 million fine of one of the private RTOs that were similarly yeah. rorting. Yeah. And I think, you know, we had family daycare in Australia for years and years and years and it was run by essentially non-profit organisations um, across the country, and I, you know, there was occasional rorts, not very many, not very much, and it was only once it was opened up to the for-profit market that rorting took off in a big way. And I think we see the same in the private RTO market. You know, when you had TAFE doing the thing, no rorting, 
as soon as you open it up to the for-profit operators, suddenly there's rorting. Well, there's a couple of lessons there, Lisa, that I'm, I'm absolutely... <laughs> no, not at all, but I'm sure there's some lessons there to be learned that I'm sure the federal government will be taking you know, very great heed of and will be adjusting policy settings to ensure that we don't, uh, that we don't just let the market rip in these spaces. I'm sure that's what the outcome of those will be. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm seeing a pink pig flying just outside my window. <laughs> um, I think, Lisa, you've, you've uh, suggested the next uh, thing as well from the Sydney Morning Herald, which is looking at, um, I guess, just sort of tacking on to the Gonski school debate. Did you want to go take us through that one as well? Yeah. I love this article so much. It mm-hmm. just came out today. It's by Judith Ireland, who's a Canberra Press Gallery um, uh, journalist journalist for the for Fairfax, and she basically has written a whole column where she's just you know pushing for early education. So um, what she's saying is that. Um, uh, the early childhood sector has been begging the government to do more for preschoolers for years, um, saying that, you know, four-year funding for preschool isn't enough. There should be three-year-olds should get preschool education as well. And she says that very interesting. She says, this is not a routine call from a sector in search of money and relevance. And she goes on to quote all the evidence as to why it's needed, like the AEDC, um, our slide in international education rankings, um, the Mitchell Institute's reports, especially from Stacey Fox, um, you know, and um, the 2013 study that was done by Melbourne Uni that talks about how much higher children with an early education rate in the NAPLAN and stuff. She then has a look at the British research and then says, so, you know, like it's not, a, it's about play-based learning, it's not about anything else, but really, you know, we've got to do it. And she said that um, Birmingham has acknowledged the case for extending preschool to three-year-olds, but there's no one doing anything because the childcare package, Jobs for Families package, has taken priority. And she said, so preschool campaigners can be quietly non-pessimistic about change someday, but this is not imminent nor guaranteed. And Sam Page then says, you know, there's no use talking about it in the future. Three-year-olds are three-year-olds now. I think that was a very good quote. But it's her last line that is just absolutely brilliant where she says, if the point is quality education for kids, we need to give a gonskini to yeah. So instead of having Gonski, we have Gonskini. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, like, it came, the article came out of nowhere. Yeah. You know, she just obviously thought about it and decided, okay, you know, um, like, we need to do this. Yeah. Can I, I think I've made this point probably a few times on the podcast, and we're already at the point where we're boringly, I'm boringly saying the same things I say over and over again. But I'm always just slightly chuffed every time one of these stories come out. You, look, Lisa, you're a bit of a better media follower in particular than me, but I, I would be confident saying, like, even just going back four or five years, there weren't these sort of articles being written in the mainstream press, so in Fairfax, in... Um, you know, in the age of the Sydney Morning Herald, even, you know, occasionally in Australian, if you avoid Judith Sloan, where 
there's just this, I think, overwhelming acceptance that this is, you know, something that just has to happen. And, you know, it's in these mainstream, you know, this isn't, you know, early childhood blogs and, you know, crazy people like us bagging on about this. I think this it, it, it's this has been a significant win, I think, for the sector where we don't often talk about wins because there's so much that hasn't gone well. Um, is that too is, like is that right, Lisa? Or I just, did I just not see them beforehand? But I just think there's been this this tidal wave of them coming in the last few years. I think that there are more, and I think if you know if like I've been following this news for about you know 13, 14 years now, <laughs> and I think there are more, and I, you know what, I reckon it's because of Twitter. A lot of these articles come out from people that follow early education advocates and so they're being bombarded with a bit of a, you know, a message um, about the importance of early education. And so that's becoming part of their reality, you know. And I think that is, you know, yeah, I think we're doing something right there. Yay. That's, I mean, that is that is a win, I think. I, I try and, it, it, it does always just sort of remind me that, yes, we've still got a long way to go, but the the mainstream sort of acceptance is, is getting there, I think, which is a big part of the battle. Um, I'm going to bring one now, which is that uh, today, as we record this on a Wednesday, Kate Ellis has announced that she's opening up Labor's consultation on the early childhood sort of sector to... Uh, all participants, so we won't get too much into this, but there's a press release on her site and an opportunity for uh, people to contribute. There's a pretty short turnaround on time frame, so I think they have to be by the 16th of June, um, but they can. looks like they can basically be as short as long as you want, and I, I would hope that a lot of sector orgs will um, will contribute to that. I'd be, I'm very interested to see how you know people will engage with this given the failure of advocacy at the jobs for families package and that we couldn't get you know funding for for vulnerable children over the line i'm interested to see if we'll see some more strident advocacy from from people this time around on on this part but yeah lisa you get to write another submission that must be exciting yay (laughs) (laughs) and it actually it's quite interesting because it covers every possible area yeah there's about 24 questions I, i think or something yeah, I looked at it and my heart kind of sank. <laughs> dot points, Lisa, dot points. kind of, you know, like Kate Ellis knows the Territory fairly well. She would know pretty much everything that the field, the sector was pushing for in one way or another. So I think we can, we don't have to be fancy about this. We can just all bullet point the same <laughs> sorts of concepts, you know. So. Yeah. Dot points, Make people. the early education show we'll do do a submission, oh. and we'll we'll put it up there, and you know, direct people to it so they can use it as their cheap submission. Well, and this, say, you know, this say seems like a first. This seems like a perfect opportunity to volunteer Leanne for that job. Oh, definitely, yeah. Leanne writes excellent submissions. I think, um, yeah, she'll have it done by what tomorrow morning. I Absolutely, think? thanks, Leanne. Um, <laughs> and then we've got one last bit of uh, bit of news on the news list. Lisa, do you want to bring us this one? Yeah, and look, I'm including this one because it's a very boringly familiar story, but really <laughs> important to very small communities. So it's just about one preschool in Madawi, and Madawi is. Uh, 
in New South Wales. It's can't be honest and say, I'm not really sure. It's in where re- it is. regional New South <laughs> Wales, in that specific I think spot. It's in the Hunter part of New South Wales. <laughs> anyway, Medallis Community Preschool has been going for quite a long time, right? And the t- this week, one of their staff was recommend was recognised for the fact that she's been at the service for 25 consecutive years. And the staff collectively at that service bring 115 years of service to the centre between them. So the director has had 31 years and a fellow staff member has had 24 and now um, uh, Monica has had 25. So, you know, it's pretty amazing that long at one service in the one small town. You know, it's been going for 31 years, so pretty much since it started, you know, it's, it's had um, it's had the same staff. And wow. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, good on them. And so you've had, it's worth celebrating these particularly long-standing community operations that have, you know, seen off uh, sector reforms that have, you know, <laughs> probably not put them in the best position and... You know, they, they, look, it's just always worth celebrating the people that devoted their, you know, professional careers to this uh, this crazy world of early child education that we live in because um, I think it becomes harder and harder for people to engage with this as a career. So, you know, they've, they've done a, you know, that, that's a pretty long period of service for the children and families of that community. So congrats to them from the early education show. It is. And I just looked up and it was where I thought it was. It is in the Hunter, just kind of like um, north of Newcastle um, on the coastal area there. Wonderful. All right. Well, that's our news uh, articles for this week. We will bring you the news of the week next week, as we normally do. We'll take a very quick break and then be back with our main topic for the, for the episode. Right, we're back. So we're going to tackle uh, what might be what semi-controversial, semi-interesting. I think we'll be relatively diplomatic about how we approach it, but we're going to be looking at quality uh, in sort of preschool, kindergarten settings versus long daycare. And um, Lisa, I know, not to put you on the spot, but I know this was a topic you'd suggested we, we should tackle. Did you want to maybe give us a bit of a background on why you think this is an important one for us to discuss on this episode? Look, I, I do, and it's for a few reasons. One is CEQA gradually um, releasing more and more drilled-down data about quality ratings, and in their latest snapshot, I noticed that you know that there was differences between preschools and long daycare centres, and this is something that I will defend unto the death. Um, if anyone says to me, where do you get better early education? I will say you can get great early education in long daycare or in dedicated preschools, community-based preschools, school-based preschools. I'll say it should be the same. We're all covered by the same national quality framework. It should be absolutely you know, possible to get the same quality of early education and care in both services. That said, and I think it is an elephant in the room because I think we so often have to argue that comment, 
I think it's worth looking at the differences in the ratings. So if you can bear with me for a moment, Liam, I'll just go through what the ASEQA um, data shows for those that haven't actually looked at it. Go for it. In long day cares, 28% of services are working towards, uh, 28% of long day cares are working towards, and only 9% of preschools are working towards. At the other end, 29% of long day cares are exceeding, and 56% of preschools or kindergartens are exceeding. So that's pretty huge in the difference area. We've got a lot more preschools at the high end, 56% compared to 29%, and a lot more um, long day cares at the bottom end. So 28% working towards 9%. So there's a number of reasons why that could, you know, like we could, you know, um, we can think about a number of reasons as to why that might be the case. Do you have any ideas, Liam? Uh, I will inevitably get it wrong if I guess because it's one of those ones where it's got to be pretty extreme, so I'm too scared to guess. What are you, what are you going to have to tell me? Well, okay, I'm going to go for something straight away, which is what sort of provision, um, like... Is there any for-profit operators in the preschool and dedicated kindergarten space? Uh, and the answer is no. There's no. a handful? Yeah. There is a handful of private preschools, but generally, no. So if you look at the... Let's just look at um, the private versus... Uh, or for-profit versus um, community-based stats generally. And we've got, let's just say, standalone community-based services, right? Yeah. We've got 40% of them exceeding um, as not-for-profit compared to 19% of private services that are exceeding. We've got 19, at the other end, we've got 19% of community-based services working towards compared to 36% of private working towards. So you can see that it kind of mirrors those preschool versus long day care um, stats. So I think we then need to say, okay, well, does that mean that, you know, the um, is it because of the auspice? Is it because they're not for profit that the preschools are actually doing better? Or is it, you know, how is that, or is is the fact that the community-based um, services are doing better in the ratings overall because the preschools are running them over the line? And unfortunately, the ASEQA data, as it is, doesn't let us dig down into that. We can't cross-tabulate to see, um, well, the released data, I'd say, doesn't allow us to cross-tabulate, so we can't see if it's community-based long day care centres are doing as well as community-based um, preschools. And when I say community-based, I should say, you know, it's also state government ones. If you look at um, how state uh, government-run services are doing overall, 56% of them are at the exceeding level and only 12% are at the working towards level. 
So very similar to the preschool statistics, you know. So basically what we can kind of, you know, to summarise, what we can tell from this is that you're more likely to be exceeding the national quality standard if you're a preschool, if you're state-run or if you're community-based. So what I want to know is, you know, are we actually going to act on what we know? Yeah, I think one of the... um... Yeah, I had a look at the snapshot data, and it is fairly stark. But it's one of the interesting things I think in Australia, which you talked about before, the, compli- the complicated nature of the Australian system. So preschool means different things in different states and territories and how they're funded and how they're implemented can vary. But ta- even taking all that to account, the the difference between you know preschool just as a catch-all term and LDC, long daycare, is pretty stark and it's one of those ones where you're right see the the, the recent data stuff from Sega has been fantastic but it because the frustration is it kind of makes me want to go go the next level i want to be able to then dig further down into it which we can't yet do but it's one of those ones where on the i look at it and i just it doesn't it doesn't ring true to me with what i know about um with what i know about the sector it just the, the it's, it, it the stat seems off to me, and I guess that's why we need to think about. So why, yeah, why do we think the stats are are saying what they do? And I'm this is where we get into, I guess, some of the <clears throat> some of the interesting territory about um, why we think that might be. So I'm going to be, I'm going to go the cowards route, Lisa, and go to you first. So what's what's your read on why the stats are saying that? Okay, I, th- I you know. I can offer any number of theories, but they are just complete theories. One of the things that we know from the census of um, uh, of the workforce, and we're still waiting on last year's census to come out, but one of the things that we know is that generally our staff in preschools, kindergartens, are a lot older than our staff in long daycare centres. Generally, they've worked for a lot longer in the sector and generally their qualifications are higher. So there's more early childhood teachers, less certificate threes working in um, uh, our preschools than in our long day care services. I think that age difference is really important, but not because I think older people are better than younger people but because I think the sorts of people that were attracted into being essentially preschool teachers in those days um, were more likely to be across from across the board academically and educationally. It wasn't seen as a, a career of last resort. Yeah. <laughs> it was seen as an aspirational career. Yeah. Um, at the time they went in. And I think that the education that they went through, whether it be, you know, in one of those dedicated, um, uh, you know, teachers' colleges or whether it was in, um, you know, a straight university teaching degree uh, was a lot higher than what people get. Nowadays. So it's interesting, Lisa, to play devil's advocate. Longevity. 
Yeah, yeah okay. Let me just say one more thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The longevity of the staff. You know, just like that article we read about the Madawi people, when you've been in services for a very long time, you can either get incredibly stale and over <laughs> it or you can keep refining your practice yeah. more and more and more. And I guess the question is, is that so? We, is that happening? So to play devil's advocate, I think we need to try and make sure we're, we're looking at this as a bit of a debate. So I, I wonder whether... I think you're right. I think in general terms, you know, that longevity is something that the sectors that are desperately craving at the moment. But, you know, I do look at everything that's happened over the last, look, even if we look at the National Quality Framework, which was only five years ago, but looking at what we've learned about early childhood education, you know, even just into the turn of the century, if we have, you know, teachers who qualified in, you know, the 70s or the 80s, do we, are we, are we convinced that that is now a relevant qualification today and, and i will say that you know having visited some and this is you know in the context of the act they are what i would very i would describe them as very old school about the way they they operate and do them they did there, there were some that didn't look much different from the preschool i attended in you know sort of 1990 <laughs> <laughs> like is that do we oh my god Liam, are you that like yeah sorry lisa Seriously? that was a guess it may have even been uh, later what but um <laughs> the preschool I didn't attend in, 19, in the 1960s. <laughs> but you turned out all right, Lisa. It was all fine. But um, like, do we? What, what is that an issue? Do we think? Do we? Do we think that the sector has changed so much over that time that essentially, and not to say that in, in no way to saying the qualification is worthless, but. How are we ensuring that people are remaining up to date and, and are engaged with the new framework particularly? Sure. And I think that, you know, I, I hear sometimes or go and see sometimes preschools that time hasn't touched. You know? Yeah. And <laughs> the preschool room that time forgot. <laughs> yeah. They're doing routines <laughs> like, you know, they've been doing routines for 30 or 40 years. They've, you know, like that. But I think... The, in a in a sector where there's a strong culture of inquiry, where there's a strong culture of pro- professional development, where there's a lot of mixing between people in the sector, I think that those ones are lesser than the ones that you know are making changes as needed, are keeping their qualifications up to date. I'd love to actually look at you know, the qualifications in terms of how many um, preschool teachers have higher qualifications like Mm. master's degrees or PhDs compared to long daycare services. Because I I think that would also I would also, yeah, look, I'd also be really interested to know who, I wonder if there are teachers out there who are exactly which, who are engaged and who are reflective and I almost wonder if they've gone the other way around. I want, I'd love to know if there are teachers out there who are maybe going getting a, a you know a more recent diploma in early childhood, just to as a as a means of remaining up to date and engaged with the sort of more recent changes in the sector. That that'd be interesting to know if that if that's if if there are teachers doing that because you know top of my head that'd be something I would consider for sure. Mm, I spoke to some someone today who um, had done her you know like her degree but it was kind of like in the time when it was a a slightly dodgy degree 
Um, and she's now upgrading to her bachelor's and she's kind of a bit ashamed because she's been in the sector for so long. She's saying, oh, look, I'm just getting my bachelor's, you know. <laughs> but, like, in her terms and in everyone's terms, she was university educated. It was just that that qualification no longer, you know, holds, is not rated by a CEQA. So she got two years' credit for that out of her degree, um, but she still had to do two years' work, Yeah, you know? mm. And, you know, I think probably there's more like that than uh, going back and actually doing a diploma. But, mm. yeah. So can I... Can but, I- can I chuck yeah, a couple of conspiracy theories yep. in there? Yep. So and I think this is probably more relevant to the ACT context than a couple of other states. I know it's done very differently in New South Wales. But so in the ACT and in a number of states where there's direct government funding and oversight of sort of preschools, which are directly attached to schools in the year before uh, school, usually on the same site. I do wonder whether there's there's issues and there's a potential conflict around the departments that mm-hmm. run and oversee the service, you know where I'm going with this, the departments that run yeah. and oversee the services also rating them. And I oh, also... William, come on, they'd <laughs> have a Chinese war between those two Oh, of course. But, but you, and you know, and I, you know, I, I have, I, I work with the education director. I know them. I, I'm fully aware there is not a massive conspiracy of people going, look, they just needs to get a good rating. But what I worry about is the unconscious approaches to this. So where, if we look at, what could and can happen is that, you know, the education director draws assessment and rating officers from preschool teachers, people who have worked in that system for a long, long time, which means they are looking for a particular type of approach in that area. So if those assessors are then assessing preschool programs and they're looking for the things they are used to seeing and then go into a long daycare space where often this is done very differently due to the context, so longer hours, stronger engagement with families, I would I would argue, and you know, less routine and structured-based approaches to this stuff, I do wonder whether that creates an unconscious issue for the sector. And it's particularly, you know, in the ACT, we're quite a small jurisdiction, so everyone generally knows each other, but there's also a very marked split between the preschool sector and the long daycare sector because of that direct government funding. It's it, 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 it's very much seen as this first step to school, and long daycare is very much the, the sort of lesser cousin. So... I, I do think that's an issue. I know that would be you know, a similar issue in other states and, and territories. And I think that has to be called out given how stark the data is. I, I do, part of me goes, that has to be part of it. Not, I said, in a conscious way, not people sitting around twirling their moustaches going, we're going to rate long daycare really badly and we're going to rate preschools really highly. But A, I do think there's an unconscious, people are looking for things they're familiar with, but also... You do you do have to wonder about the political pressure from political masters to go, we keep getting media things about how bad the ratings are. Can we what can we do about that? When they're rating okay. the services if they run. Liam, if you keep talking for two minutes, I've just done a download of the New South Wales State Government Services and I'll be able to tell you how that works in New South Wales. Oh. But I just need a minute more to finish my download so if you can just talk for a minute fill up the silence <laughs> yeah normally i have no problem talking whatsoever but when someone tells me i'm just going to have to talk while we get while we do that on but um look one of the things i might uh talk about here is is just expanding on that point about um 
so the, the topic of tonight is sort of, you know, quality in preschool versus quality in long daycare. And we've talked about preschool versus long daycare, but we haven't talked about that term quality. So what I mean, we've got the National Quality Framework, which outlines benchmarks and guidelines for what quality looks like. But does quality look different and and is quality different in, in different settings? And that's, you know, partly a bit of a semantic question, but... One of the things I always talk about when I talk with educators about the National Quality Framework, when there are um, understandable frustrations, and I know I'm guilty of this as well, there are understandable frustrations that the NQF doesn't provide enough specific guidance, particularly in Quality Area 1 educational program and practice, about what things should look like. But the reason that that is a frustration is that because you are trying to have an overall system that will work for you know, on one extreme, you know, a, a, a early childhood service in you know, maybe the fifth floor of a office building in Metro Sydney and one in far north Queensland that's in, you know, in, in rural, you know, some of the remote remotest places in Australia, you you cannot have a single templated approach to what educational program and practice quality looks like in those spaces. But um, but even sort of taking away the geography of it, you know, preschools operate very differently to long daycare services. So preschools are open, you know, you know, roughly nine to three. Families don't set foot inside the classroom until nine or, you know, that, until the bell rings. In long daycare, we have very different approaches to that relationship. Families, families sort of wander in and out. There's an open door policy. You know, when I was a centre director, you know, families didn't make meetings to come and see me. They, they, Plonk, come into my office and plonk themselves in a chair and 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 basically start that you know my daughter was in preschool last year and there had to be a meeting booked you know two days in advance to even have a sort of discussion on that kind of stuff so that and I, I don't really have you know an answer for this but I think and and I will declare my bias here that I think the the holistic work that happens in you know, birth to five spaces, particularly around work with families, but particularly around our focus on children's learning and well-being. I do actually probably believe in, and people will, you know, say I'm biased. I think we do that better overall in birth to five than we do in preschool. Yeah, uh, I think I'd agree with you on that one. And I, and I also agree just about to, you know, some assessors, long day care, I think could look a bit chaotic compared to... yeah. The more measured kind of days of preschool. Regimented. But, yeah, regimented. I've come up with those figures. So for New South Wales, there's 100... Um, the regulator runs 100 services, yeah? Yeah. Um, in New South Wales. And uh, in the exceeding category is 55 of them. Then... All bar, um, all bar four of the rest, so um, 51 of them, four, what's that, 55 are exceeding, 40, I can't do maths, <laughs> four of them are working towards and the rest are meeting, right? So it's it's not as extreme as what you'd think if it was biased, but there's less at the working towards end. So, mm. you know, is there a bias there in getting them over the line or is that really, you know, what they're like? I think the fact that there are four, you know, that are working towards possibly suggests that there isn't a bias, but 
who knows? Who knows? But I suppose I suppose the main point I want to make about all of this is not is our preschools better than long daycare or not is long daycare better than preschools, but if we're finding out things through our ratings process, we need to, to know what they are. So we don't need to just know that, um, you know, that services aren't doing as well on quality area, blah, blah, blah. We need to interrogate what the data is telling us about good education and care. Is it that truly, is it that, the, you know, truly great education and care happens more in not-for-profit services? Is it that truly great education and care happens more in preschool services? Is it that truly great education and care happens in state government, you know, services, which the one thing you didn't mention about those services is that they're invariably better funded than community-based ones. You know, does it, is it money? Is that what makes a better education and care service? Is it the service sizes, given that our preschools are a lot smaller than most of our long daycare services, and in some states and territories, significantly smaller? Like in Queensland, some of the long daycare services are, you know, getting up to the 200 children mark, whereas their preschools are a lot smaller. Is it because there's so many large community organisation providers in the preschool space? We've got um, KU in New South Wales. We've got, um, oh, no, I'm going to forget their name. Who's our Queensland one? CNK. CNK, yeah. Um, You know, like they both run significant numbers of, of services is there something about being part of a larger organisation that helps in the professional development and, you know, um, uh, quality area one? You know, does that help if you've got people helping you, you know, implement um, your, your programs and your planning? You know? Yeah. What? Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of questions that I don't know if if we're getting answers if we're using the data that a sequel is producing to the extent that we could yeah and also yeah and not and not just having it as a yeah yeah and not just having it as a one versus the other so this isn't just about you know which is better and then devolving into arguments about well mine's better or no but it's you're right it's about having can we have a realistic and a you know a sort of mature discussion as a sector about what we can learn from those statistics. Yeah, for sure, because I've been visiting services for the last few weeks quite intensively, and I've seen some for-profit services that were wonderful. And similarly, I've seen some community-based services that I didn't think were that wonderful, you know. Mm -hmm. I've seen some preschools that were, oh, yeah, okay. And I've seen, you know, some long daycare services where anyone would love to work and love to have their child at, you know. And I think that all of those things, you know, there's always outliers in all of this, but we, we just need to know if we're spending so much on a national quality framework then let's find out what it is that, you know, creates quality. We, we went into this with two clear ideas. We went into the NQF knowing that 
the key things that we thought made quality were, well, three things really, but one they didn't mandate. So the two things were ratios, qualifications, and then group sizes. They didn't actually mandate the group sizes, but, you know, we know that from research that those three things are important. Well, here we have a bunch of research about, you know, when compared to the national quality standard, these sorts of services are working well and we need someone to be asking the whys, what it is about yeah. those services. Absolutely. And look, at least you mentioned, you know, professional development a little while ago and I think given the context of uh, we are literally, you know, a month away from entering a space where there is absolutely no federal funding for professional development whatsoever. So the Long Day Care Professional Development Fund uh, ends as of 30 June 2017 and the PSCs ended uh, last year. Uh, you know, what do we think will be the impact on, you know, no federally funded PD for, for exactly this kind of issue, for the ability to, um, you know, explore and engage with, with quality in this space? Yeah, I think it's so, so sad. I think it's sad for all those professional development organisations running around the country that will be out of work once the money dries up. But um, more importantly, I think it's sad for that very thing I spoke about earlier, you know, people staying in the loop, people getting that kind of um, enrichment from talking to their colleagues because this is a sector that's unique in that people working really tiny workplaces where they're not having people rubbing shoulders with other people. It's not like schools where you've got, you know, 20 teachers that can sit around or go to the pub on Friday night (laughs) and talk about what's working for them with Year 9 and what's not working for them Year 9. You know, you've got two or three people at a service in some cases. In some services you might have, you know, a lot, lot more. But generally we're small workplaces. Small workplaces need professional development. Absolutely. And it's one of those key planks we know that as with any profession, but I would argue, you know, maybe particularly in, um, you know, early childhood education where what we learn about what's good for children in this space is continually changing and updating and shifting that it's so important that people are exposed to, you know, perspectives on that and that that's going to become so much harder over the next little while, which is a, you know, really disappointing. Yeah. And I think that's why, Liam, people have to continue to put money aside um, for professional development in budgets, despite the fact it's no longer funded. You've got to put a higher percentage than what you have been putting aside. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's tricky and tough and difficult, and maybe we'll tackle that another episode later on, but that, it, it... it's, I think it's just it's vital and critical and we've got to figure out ways to do that as a sector given that's the sort of boat we're in at the moment. But um, that's our discussion. I think we raised more questions than we answered in that one, Lisa, but that's the nature of the beast, I think, yeah. for a discussion like that. But I think um, that's because Leanne wasn't here to tell us what the right answer was. <laughs> I was always worried because Leanne's the, the, the more diplomatic one of the, of the three of us, so I was worried that we were going to get on some huge rant and, and fire each other off. But I think we, we behaved ourselves well, Lisa, so... Um, I'm sure we'll be allowed oh, to Oh, hang do. on. I, I can see that you've got a, a recommendation for reading. That <laughs> <a bit contentious. laughs> well, we might. Uh, yes, I do. You're sneaking ahead on our running sheet. But uh, we'll, we'll wrap up that discussion and be back after a quick break with our recommendations and sign-off. So stay with us. 
right, we're back, and yes, it's time for our recommendations for the week, and it's just the two this week, because it's just you and I, Lisa, but Lisa, after you, what are you bringing us? Look, I'm bringing us a, a slightly off-topic article, but I think it's really important, which is UNICEF have done um, reconcert every budget. The, the Commonwealth Government should present a, a children's impact statement to work out how and where taxpayer dollars are being spent to protect and support children, ensuring that children have a great start to life. But because the federal government doesn't do that, um, uh, you know, then UNICEF said, well, bugger it, we'll do it. <laughs> and what they've said is, um, what they've said is for, for the last budget, the 2017 budget, that um, the Australian government will spend $75 billion on children, 16.2% um, uh, of total government spending, which sounds quite good, doesn't it? Um, then you hear that it was exactly the same percentage. Oh, no, it was an increase of 2.6% on last year. Um, and... It's going down a little bit in 2018 and 2019. But um, what... Oh, sorry, it's gone over the next page and I'm not there. No wonder I can't find the material I need. Here it is. Got it. Okay, so what they say, though, is that the main... Um, where it's being spent is on school education. So it's $18.2 million dollars a billion dollars spent on schools. So, you know, maybe we need to look at not just how much money is being spent, but where that money is being spent yeah. on children. That's always been a big yeah, I mean, on school education. That's always been a big problem in Australia, even just looking at, you know, early childhood education is that there are these huge numbers bandied about in the billions, but it's incredibly poorly invested and as you've mentioned before, a lot of it's just going into private operators' profits. Anyway, so, good on UNICEF. I, I, I always love so something. So, what's your recommendation? <laughs> Speaking of, um, the Education Department through the Minister Simon Birmingham has released as part of their sort of ongoing package of releases to do with the Jobs for Families package, uh, what they're calling a Child Care Savings Estimator, which means you can plug in your details and work out how much you're saving. And look, and I only put this in there, not really to recommend that you use it properly, but only that, and I sort of said this on Twitter, is a reminder that there are families that will be better off under this package, and I don't think we've ever shied away from admitting that, but it's there has to but people should know that that comes at the cost of some of the most vulnerable children in our communities not being able to access early childhood. So I would say, look, it's there. This is basically just an excuse for me to go on that rant, but I would say as well, go in and put some low-income families um, stuff in there. You know, low-income families, you know, maybe no full-time job, difficulty finding work, and see what how see how their access to early childhood education gets cut. And remember that that is essentially funding, you know, some you know pretty small savings for families higher up the income stream, which. You know, it's really unfair. The, the family shouldn't be paying that much for childcare for early childhood education full stop. So I, it's, it's really hard to begrudge, you know, people paying less for that. But I, I am ethically challenged by that at the expense of, you know, people who probably would benefit even more from early childhood education. So, I mean, it's really just a heads up that that's there and that that's, that's, that's the impact on this stuff. Sad face. 
I'm, I'm just doing one as you talk, Wayne. <laughs> why don't you? Why don't you do all that while we? I, I might do our, uh, our normal wrap up. So, as usual, thanks for listening to Ooh, us. We'll have. I'm you... going to end up paying. Oh! Oh no! Oh no! Oh, it says I'm going to save. Oh, how much? Oh, I don't believe. It says I'm going to save. Oh, um, do 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 forty dollars. Oh well, that's totally yeah, worth. Yeah, that's totally worth. Um, you know, a child not being out of access. I don't believe it though. So uh, I was said that my income was under sixty five thousand, and I didn't pass the the um work. No, it didn't ask me if I'd passed uh... the work study test. The activity test. So it's a fairly useless calculator anyway. All right, let's yeah. let, let's wrap this up. But um, as usual, thanks to everyone who's been listening to us. If you're enjoying and in loving what you're hearing, there's a couple of uh, really particular ways you can you can support the show that we'd be very very grateful for. You can um, give us some direct financial support at uh, patreon.com forward slash early edgy show, where you can become a patron of the show and you can become one of our best buddies and friends by uh, donating as little as one dollar a month to keep this crazy podcast show on the road. Um, if you can't do that, it'd be fantastic if you could head to the Apple Podcast Store and give us a rating and review. You can do that directly from your device if you've got a newfangled iPhone or iPad or one of those crazy eye things. Uh, you can get in touch with the show in a variety of ways. Obviously, particularly for a topic like this, we'd be love to hear views from you know preschool teachers and and educators and teachers working in long day care. You can find us at earlyedushow at gmail dot com. Uh, I do check it occasionally, although I haven't been good, good at doing that recently. So I'll make sure I log back on there when this episode goes out. So feel free to send me an email. I'll make sure I read and reply. Uh, you can also track the show down on Facebook and Twitter at earlyedushow on both of those. Uh, you can also find us all individually. So I better give Leanne's a shout out first on Twitter. So you can find her at Leanne M. Gebs 3 and she'll be back next week with us. But you can find me at... And you remember her, her Twitter. Better than she better does. Better than she does, right? <laughs> you can find me at Liam McNicholas. We can, look, we don't need Leanne. You can just pretend to be Leanne. Like I, do, I can probably do a decent Leanne impression. She just has to sound yeah. very reasonable and assured and, and less ranty than two of us, really. No, you could not do a reasonable impression. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you on Twitter, Lisa? I'm at Lisa J. Bryant. Fantastic. So they'll be back with all three of us again next week, but we thank you all for joining uh, Lisa and I this week. And until that time, it's bye from me. And from me. And from Leanne. And from Leanne. <laughs> Bye, everyone. <laughs>